Well, if you have your Bible this morning, go ahead and turn to the, the epistle to the Romans, chapter 15. Romans 15. Now, if we look back at the last couple of months, specifically the series on leadership and servanthood, and last week with Randy Ruiz coming in, in his own words, Randy said, I think I tied a bow on what you've been preaching on. It just all flowed so well. The, the, the idea of leadership and servanthood and honor. If we are following God's formula, then we can expect his favor. It's kind of the, the way it all lined up. And it was really awesome to see the Holy Spirit do that. But this is one of those times where we might want to pause and ask ourselves, you know, was last week a fluke? Was last week one of those just things that we shouldn't, that we can't expect every Sunday? Maybe there's things within our church that need to shift. Maybe there are things that need to be tightened up. Even some things that maybe we need to let go of. Be honest with you, and I am always honest with you guys. I try to be to the best of my ability. This message, last week Randy got to town, and his plane was tossed everywhere by the wind. He was not feeling well. Some of you saw the flock note. Please pray. Our evangelist is sick. Now, what do you do when you're the pastor and your guest speaker might be unable to come on tomorrow? Panic. Right? No, no. And that's, well, yes, but no. You're, you're to practice what you preach and trust in the Lord. And okay, you know what? I'm going to pray and I'm going to write up a sermon just in case. That's what I did. And this message, after Sunday, I went back to it on Monday and I said, Okay, I've got the skeleton, but there needs to be some fresh meat put on those bones. So we de- I decided this is going to harmonize. I, I think it perfectly harmonizes with everything we've been going through the past few months and, and with Randy being here as well. So it, it, it worked out great. It's awesome how the Holy Spirit does that, how he flows. Sunday night, Randy talked about the personality traits of the Holy Spirit, how he flows like rivers, how he saturates us like the rain, things like that. That's how he operates within the church. And it's beautiful when the Spirit moves, if you'll pardon the pun, since we used all those water metaphors, the Spirit moves fluidly through the church, even among two ministers who obviously are very different. I do not look anything like Randy, right? Randy is short. I'm a little bit taller. Randy and I do have one thing in common, but I'm not going to point that out so uh, blatantly, but He has a different preaching style than I do. That's okay. But yet the Holy Spirit moved fluidly between both of us to to bring this message to the church, and I believe to the community as well. It all seems to fit together like perfect puzzle pieces. When we look at leadership and servanthood, how honor is that key in those relationships. How we honor our leaders, and those who are leaders honor those who serve within the church. In fact, Paul says to Timothy, right after talking about the pastors and the deacons in 1 Timothy 3, he says this, he says, I am writing these things to you so that you will know how one ought to conduct himself in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and support of the truth. The idea of Christianity being an individualistic thing, by the way, is a very recent development in the church. For almost 2,000 years, Christianity was seen as a team effort, almost. That we were meant to be together in this fight. 
that we were meant to be together in this journey, that we lean on one another, and that we operate together. The idea of the Christian doing it himself, in fact, in many cases was tantamount to spiritual suicide, if not physical, because they had no one to watch their back, no one to look out for him. And so this is where I believe we must proceed forward. And I'm going to come back to a passage that we've looked at several times over the last couple of months, Romans 15, but we're going to begin in verses four, uh, verse 4 through 6 instead of just 5 and 6. It begins like this. For whatever was written in earlier times was written for our instruction so that through the perseverance and the encouragement of the Scriptures, we might have hope. Now may the God of perseverance and encouragement grant you to be of the same mind with one another according to Christ Jesus, so that with one accord you may with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now the title of today's message is The Church That Moves. We want to be the church that moves. Right? Amen? We want. There are plenty of churches in the world today, by the way. There's seven in Lisbon alone. Seven churches in a town of 2,000. And we want to be the church that sets the pace. Not the one that follows after everybody else. Why? Because we are Pentecostal. We are the church that maintains the gifts are for today. We believe the Spirit, the Holy Spirit, still moves and is active in His church today. In Acts 1.8, Jesus says, You will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, and you will be my witnesses even to the ends of the earth. And I'm kind of paraphrasing that. That's the Jeff Williams translation. Don't, don't quote me. Quote Scripture. But that word power comes from the Greek word dunamis. And we get our English word dynamite. And we take that and we so often will say, ah, look at the power. Look at the power. But I was at the VA a while back and I said, how many of you guys in your service time use dynamite? And one guy says, I did. I said, when you use dynamite, what, was, what happened with it? He said, what was there was no longer there. It influenced the area around it. Amen? See where I'm going this morning? With Scripture as our boundary line, prayer as our hotline, and being Spirit in line, we want to be the church that moves. So we say, God, what's your formula? Right? That's what we've done for the past six weeks now. God, what is your formula for how we are to operate in our marriage? What's your formula for our home, for our workplace, for our church, and our church leadership? Because if I... Your pastor tried to create a formula of my own. We'll soon discover we're not a church. We're some kind of other business. It's no longer outreach we do. We're marketing to appeal to people. It's no longer church growth, but consumer culture we become obsessed with. Now, the truth is we do have to operate sometimes as a business. We're a 501c3 nonprofit. We do have to do some marketing and some advertisement. That's just the reality of the, of the nature of everything. But it is not... The advertising is not the driving force behind what we do. It's the gospel of Jesus Christ. That is our driving force. Every advertisement, everything we do, every banner we hang up in town, the idea is to give people a place or an idea of where they can come and receive the gospel of Jesus Christ. That they can repent of their sin and be sanctified. That's the message Jesus preached. That's the message that the John the Baptist preached. Repent and be Baptize, repent, believe the good news. That's the message of the apostles, and it should be the message of the church. See, God hasn't changed. 
Mankind has not changed, so the mission of the church has not changed. Therefore, the message of the church has not changed. So the formula of how the church should operate has not changed. God's formula for a successful church is very simple right here in Romans 15. And it's this, and if you're taking notes, you may want to write this down. We must be a church that moves, instructed by the word, encouraged through prayer, and in step. I'll say that again. We must be a church that moves, instructed by the Word, encouraged through prayer, and in step with the Holy Spirit. If we're honest, many churches move today. Or to put our cards on the table, many of those churches operate in greed. Some are social clubs or political hubs. We cannot say the church in America is not moving, but we have to ask what are they moving for? What are they moving towards? And who are they moving empowered by? The one thing that will destroy a church, if it is ever to be destroyed, simply apathetic laziness. If you think about it, two things, and only two things, never move. Things that have never had life at all, things that have had the life extinguished from them. You know, starfish have no brains, and even they know when to move. When it's appropriate, when it's the right time, they move. Church is much smarter than a a starfish. This time of year, especially as tomorrow is Reformation Day, I like to look back at church history. October 31st, when Martin Luther nailed his 95 theses to the church door in Wittenberg, Germany. I like to read the stories of the encouraging stories. They're powerful stories. Those men who were bold enough, who would stand against the the flow of the Roman Catholic Church, who for so long kept the common man in the dark when it came to the Word of God. You understand that to be able to read the Bible for almost 1,500 years, well, uh, 1,200 years at least, you had to come from a wealthy family, be schooled in Latin, and then if you could find a Bible, most priests, by the way, in that era, didn't even have a Bible. And so they would have to go and they would have to find a Bible in Latin, and that's how they would read it to the congregation. But around the 1500s, this guy named Gutenberg creates a printing press, and people begin to translate the Bible, guys like John Wycliffe, William Tyndale. They begin to translate it into English. And I've been, this year it seems like I've really been into English Reformation, even some of the Scottish Reformation. But there were a couple of English reformers by the name of Hugh Latimer and Nicholas Ridley in 1554. The crown of England was loyal to the Catholic Church, and they decided to put them to death. They were going to burn them alive at the stake for the simple crime of reading an English Bible so they could understand. Think about that. And as they tied Ridley and Latimer to the post and began to light the fire that would consume them, Latimer cried out, he said, Be of good comfort and play the man, Master Ridley. We shall this day light such a candle by God's grace in England, I trust shall never be put out. They were the candle. And if you'll pardon the pun, it's not really intended, but they sparked a rebellion of sorts. That rebellion was risen. People around England 
and to preach the English Bible. They began to preach the gospel with more fervor, more zeal. But about six years prior to his death, Latimer gave a message about the church that doesn't move. The title of the sermon was simply The Sermon of the Plow. You can Google it. You can search for it. It's powerful if you like that style of English, King James English. I'm going to paraphrase it and make it applicable to us today if you'll permit me. He says, I'd ask a strange question. Who is the best preacher? Yeah, I'm applying this to us. Who's the best preacher in all of North Dakota? Who's the best pastor in Lisbon? Same person. I know who it is. You want to know who it is? Who is it? The devil himself. He is the most diligent preacher. He is ever in his pulpit. Always preaching his message. He is the most passionate pastor. Always found in his church. He is the greatest uh, bishop or, or priest. If you look for him, you'll always find him in his home. Ever applying his business, you'll never find him idle. He is always at his plow. He says, it is his office to hinder religion, maintain superstition, set up idolatry, and all sorts of other things. He is ready as he can be wished for to set forth his plow to devise as many ways as possible that can deface and obscure God's glory. He is always on the move. That's the message Latimer was getting across that day. And Paul understood this back in Romans, in his letter to the Romans. He's telling the church how they're to move because Paul understands the devil doesn't take a day off. The church should never take a day off. Paul understood the church must be chasing after the same goal with the same passion, the same breathless desire. Because even in Paul's day, many churches had gone off the rails. If you've read Galatians, you know there's nothing encouraging, he says, to those churches. They'd become very legalistic. They had become consumed with following the law. The Corinthian churches had gone off the rails. A man was in that church sleeping with his stepmother, and they said, oh, look at God's grace. How wonderful. They, they looked at their spiritual gifts and lorded it over others, and they went to their time of fellowship, and, and they wouldn't even share food at the Lord's Supper. Ephesus is the, the jewel of Paul's epistle. To the church at Ephesus, he has no real discouraging thing to say, no real challenge, no false doctrine that had crept in and and challenging them to avoid it just yet. But by the time he's writing his last epistles to Timothy, he's sending Timothy to Ephesus because they'd gone off the rails. They'd begin to malfunction. Paul sends them because certain men were teaching strange doctrines, paying attention to myths, and so many other things. And in our day, the same is so true. Randy mentioned this, so I feel comfortable enough to say it. Fog machines, laser lights, confetti cannons, disco balls, backup dancers. To the worship teams, I've seen them all in the state of North Dakota. We have to ask, are we more about entertaining the world? Not if we're a church that moves in that direction. Not if we're to be a church that's instructed by the Word, encouraged through prayer, step with the Holy Spirit. Paul writes, for whatever was written in earlier times was written for our instruction. That's verse 4 in chapter 15. Now, Paul actually begins this chapter by telling them to be a united church, to be together. 
Those who are stronger should bear the weaknesses of those who are without strength. That's what he says in verse 1. And not to do that just to please ourselves, not to come along and help someone just so we can say, look how good I am. I, I helped this weaker Christian. Do you see how loving, how compassionate I am, how passionate I am for church unity? I helped this person. Look at how awesome I am. No. Verse 2 is very clear. He says, we seek to please our neighbor for their good and their edification. Verse 3 says, For even Christ did not please Himself, but as is written, the reproaches of those who reproached you fell on Him. You understand, the Christian life is a life of self-denial. Not one that always takes from others or receives from others, but what uses what it has in order to bless those who do not have. A life that gives, a life that loves, a life that heals, and so on. Where do we get that idea from Scripture? I'm just dropping stuff today. going to move things and uh, move forward. But Scripture is there to direct us. That's why we have it. First, uh, sorry, 2 Timothy 3.16 and 17. All Scripture is God-breathed and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, so that the man of God may be equipped, having been thoroughly equipped for every good work. All the writings of the Old Testament prophets, all the saints, their giant slaying, their Philistine tower toppling, and even their burning bush bargaining, all of that connects together to get us to the New Testament, to Jesus Christ, to direct us in Him and instruct us in Him. To give us, as the psalmist says in Psalm 119, your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my feet. It is a guide to us. A light. And yes, rules to live by. Had someone say to me a few years ago, Pastor Jeff, I don't like that you use so much Scripture in your sermons. I don't like the Bible. I just love Jesus. I said, okay. No, I understand that. I get that. But let me ask you something. You need to decide on something very important. That. Do you love Jesus more than you love breaking his heart? Oh, I do. I do love him more. What do you, what do you, how? Well, you're breaking his rules. Heart. But Pastor Jeff, you don't understand. I just love Jesus. Tell me about Jesus. Well, he's the son of God. No, that's from the Bible. You don't get to use that. You can't. You cannot pick and choose the parts of the Bible that you like and the parts you don't like and only choose to live by the parts you think apply to you. You can't pick the parts you think that you like and that's what you're going to live by. And if you don't believe me, try doing that with stop signs. Try doing that with traffic lights. That light shouldn't be red. You know, pretty soon what's going to happen? Your life's going to be in a wreck. Same with the Christian who says, I don't need to live by God's rules. I don't need to live by His Word. And I understand that frustration. I really do. Because I don't like putting my seatbelt on every time I just go to Dollar General. I don't think the speed limit should exist. I don't. I would love to be able to drive as fast as I want to. Sometimes I do it anyway. I'm, I'm confessing today my sin, okay? But Scripture, the thou shalt not, all those things, and in some cases, protect you. 
others from you. Because God is holy. Cannot tolerate sin. And He's also just. And so Scripture tells us we are to be holy like Him, but we cannot do it. There is no possible way we can follow the law. Jesus said, you think you've never cheated on your wife. You've never committed adultery. But I tell you that if you've even looked at a woman lustfully, you've committed adultery in your heart. The roots of sin are there. What's God do? Since His Son as an atonement for our sins, He dies and is buried. He rises again. Because He is just, He does not love your sins. He knows they need to be Because He's love, because He's just, He takes those sins upon Himself. Because He's God and He's master over life and death, He rises on the third day. So to the person who says, like Scripture, I would ask you, is Christ dying for you? The Gospel tells us this is what the disciples saw. The rest of the Bible tells us this is what they live for. And church history tells us this is what they died. Because they understood that all Scripture is God-breathed and leads us and points us and directs us to Jesus. Our hope. He said himself, you search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. It is these that bear witness about me. Peter says, concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied of the grace that would come to you made careful searches and inquiries, inquiring to what to know what time or what kind of time the Spirit of Christ within them was indicating he was as he was predicting the sufferings of Christ and the glories to follow. The scripture was written for our instruction that we might know Christ. The word instruction, by the way, is didaskliane in Greek, and it means that it's there for our teaching. All scriptures inspired by God and profitable for also for reproof, correction, training, and righteousness. As it teaches us, it reproves us, it corrects us, it trains us in righteousness. In other words, it should change us. As it makes us more like Christ, the old person we were should fall off to exist. That dunamis power is changing what once was there into something new. But only when we let the Holy Spirit and the words that He inspired penetrate our hearts can we really, truly. Someone might say, but I like who I am. I'd say, are you like Jesus? Well, no. That's the problem. Neither am I. And that's why I need God's Word to direct me more and more. Paul goes on in verse 4. He says, So that through the perseverance and encouragement of the Scriptures, Scriptures are not just there for teaching and for rebuking us and things like that. They're to challenge us. Help us persevere. To encourage us, encourage us, push us, grow us. Like I said, change us. Perseverance comes from a Greek word meaning endurance. And encouragement comes from a word that means both comfort and convict. So to begin with, Scripture guides us through perseverance. Verse 12 of James 1 says, Blessed is a man who perseveres under trial, for once he's been approved, he'll receive the crown of life which the Lord has promised to those who love him. In 2 Corinthians 4.16, Therefore do not lose heart, 
But though our outer man is decaying, yet our inner man is being renewed day by day. Scripture shouts to us, Christian, endure, persevere. No matter what comes at you, you can make it. And you will make it by God's grace. And it shouts in It shouts to us these beautiful things. Jesus said in John 16, these things I've spoken to you so that in me you may have peace. In the world you have tribulation, but take courage. I've overcome the world. And if you're a Christian, if you're in Christ, and that doesn't encourage you, there's something wrong. Paul says, be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and petition and thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ. They're not encouraged. Is there not perseverance to be had in the Scriptures? I'd ask you, why do so many believers hang their heads as if they're walking around in defeat, as if the weight of the world has crushed them? Because guess what? We are in one who's overcome. Should not affect us that we are more than conquerors. Church that is not in the Word so many Christians hang their head not been encouraged by the word. They've not let it penetrate their hearts. They've not spent time in the word of God. Paul concludes verse 4, he says, that we might have hope through the scriptures, through the perseverance and encouragement of the scriptures, we might have hope. You know, biblical hope, by the way, it comes from the Greek word elpis. And it doesn't mean that, gee, I hope one day my ship will come in. I hope one day that that things will work out. I hope someday that that person I have a crush on likes me back, that type of thing. It's not that kind of hope. It's an expectant hope. We know the results are in. We're just waiting to cash out. That's kind of the way we read uh, Hebrews 11.1. Faith is the assurance, not of things hoped for in the sense we look at it. If we understood what the hope that that the writer of Hebrews is talking about, we read it, faith is the assurance of things expected, yet not seen. I ask you, where is our hope? If you belong to Christ, your hope is in Christ. If your hope is in Jesus, then we have to take the word that takes us to Jesus, take every page, every paragraph, every section of every chapter that points us to Jesus. Isaiah tells us, Isaiah 55, as the rain and the snow come down from heaven and do not return there without watering the earth and making it bare and and sprout and giving seed to the sower and bread to the eater, so will my word be which goes forth from my mouth that will not return to me empty without accomplishing what pleases me, without succeeding in the matter for which I sent it. We are a church that moves forward we must be a church that's moving forward, instructed by the Word of God. By Scripture. Not by emotion, not by voices in our head, not the whims of society, not led by culture, but changing the culture. Changing society. By the power of the Word. Moving, instructed. And we move encouraged by prayer. Verse 5 begins... Now may the God of perseverance and encouragement. Hold on a second. Now, it's almost like he's shifting gears for a second. May the God who gives perseverance and encouragement 
Well, how does he give that? He just told us in his word. But his word is not meant to be read like a newspaper. You know, when I pick up a newspaper, if I got the Fargo Forum, you know the first thing I'm going for? No. The funny pages. They make me happy. I like to go to the sports. That's the second section. Good. Those are the two. You can throw the rest of the paper in the trash. I don't care. The Bible's not like that. We don't just pick the things we like. And yes, we may treat it like a roadmap for life. We may treat this like a love letter. You can look at my Bible and see I treat it like a textbook. That's, that's fine that we do that, but we must also understand that we read this in prayer. It is a two-way conversation. He speaks to us through His Word as we pour out our heart to Him. When we read Daniel, Pastor Calvin this Wednesday, by the way, is going to be preaching out of Daniel to us, uh, finishing up his manuscript, and that's a shameless plug. We want to come and get as much criticism, help him get better as possible. So you're free Wednesday. Come and bring your bucket of rotten tomatoes to throw. He, he will love you for that. But prayer goes with reading your Bible. You know, Daniel knew the law. Daniel knew the Word of God. In, in Daniel 6, it tells us that even though he understood, when the, Daniel knew when the written document was signed, he knew there was a bounty out on his head, basically. What does he do anyways? He enters his house and he continued kneeling on his knees three times a day, praying and giving thanks before his God, as he had done previously. Daniel persisted and was encouraged and made it because of his prayer life. You can say Daniel had a prayer life that got him put into the lion's den, but Daniel also had a prayer life that got him through the lion's den. People talk about Nehemiah. You read leadership books. That's the big, that was the big fad about five years ago, and it's still kind of hanging on by a thread. People say, read leadership books because they, they talk about Nehemiah. Nehemiah is a great leader. Nehemiah had a prayer life. Nehemiah's journey begins in prayer, and it continues in prayer. In fact, sometimes sit down in one sitting and read the book of Nehemiah. You know what you're going to find? This guy prays all the time. Sometimes he doesn't pray nice things. God, you saw what they did to me. I hope you get them. That's literally what he prays at one time. God, you saw how they're trash-talking Israel. Strike them down, God. He prays what's in his heart continually. And he... He makes it because of of his prayer life. And it begins, they tell him, the remnant there in the province who remain from the captivity are in great calamity and reproach. And the wall of Jerusalem is broken down and its gates are burned with fire. Now it happened that when I heard these words, I sat down and wept and mourned for days and I was fasting and praying before the God. Nehemiah rebuilt Jerusalem and he strengthened. You know, it is through prayer that we make our requests known to God. It is through prayer we speak on our own behalf before the King of heaven and earth and space and time, the eternal living God, the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit. Yahweh is His name and we worship Him, but we are able to come into His throne room on our hands and knees like the beggars that we are, but because of the King that He is, with nail-scarred hands, He reaches down and lifts us up and says, You are mine. Is that not encouraging? 
Is that not a blessing to us? If you recall, I mentioned a while back that a slave, when they found the right master, when they began to serve a good master, and they said, for life, I want to be this man's slave, they would take an all. They would take something that kind of looks like this, if you can see that, except it had a more rounded pin, pin like a punch hole. And they would go to a doorpost, and they would poke a hole through the earlobe. Prayer is like that all. When people look at you, they see your prayer life as people would see the thing in the man's ear. Church, I want to tell you something. When I say this, I'm taking, I'm, I'm kind of spiritualizing something, so bear with me on this, but I'm using it as an illustration. How big is the all in your ear? How much communication do you have with the master? How much time do you spend in prayer? Because people see that. Many of you don't know this because this happened before I was your pastor, before I even knew where Lisbon was or you'd ever heard my name. Unless well, Jeff Williams is kind of a common name. You might have heard that. There was a picture for the Dodgers. You know what? We'll move on. Picture for the Dodgers. Anyway, <laughs> but about five years ago, I had gauges in my ears, about the size of my thumbnail, those little round things. If you don't know what I'm talking about, go to West Acres Mall in Fargo sometimes, sit in the food court for about 30 minutes, you'll see it. Okay, there's always some guy in skinny jeans walking around. He, I never wore the skinny jeans for the record, all right? But I had those things in my ears. Now, unless you want to get really close and examine my dry skin, you wouldn't even know that there's still a hole there. Church, many times our prayer life is like that. You can see it in someone's life like you see those gauges. And sometimes you can see where they've taken the gauge out and it's begun to heal up. And you can't, unless you look really close, you can't tell they had the all of their master. Feel defeated, we feel beat down. We have to ask, then where is our prayer life? Psalm 42.1 says, As the deer pants for the water brook, so my soul pants for you, O God. But often we don't want to make that. We don't want to spend time in the presence of God. Last week, Experience the presence of God in the sanctuary. But here's the thing. God is omnipresent. He's always present. When we talk about experiencing His presence, it means we are very aware of His being. The power of God is made clear in the room. And we experienced that last week. Church, you can experience His presence anywhere, anytime. Corey Tinboom said in the, the camps of the Holocaust, she experienced God's presence. That begins every weekend. It doesn't have to be only when we have I don't say that to put down what happens. Have that every we can have that every when we are in prayer. Psalm five says, Give ear to my words, O Yahweh, consider my meditation, give heed to the sound of my cry for help, my King and my God, for to you I pray. You know, he listens, he hears. He responds, goes on and says, O Yahweh, in the morning you will hear my voice. In the morning I will order my prayer to you and eagerly watch. In Psalm 55, 17, evening and morning and at noon I will bring my complaint and moan and he will hear my voice. When you pray, there is, God is listening. And who better to cry out to 
Who better to lean on? Who better to talk to? Who better to whisper our complaints to? If you had a telephone number and you knew, you knew that if you dialed that number and you called it, the President of the United States had to answer the phone. Whatever he was doing, no matter what world leader he was with at the time, he had to pick up that phone and hear you. How many of you would like that number? How many of you would love to make that call? How many of you would call just to say, hey, I think you're doing a decent job on this thing. How many of you would call just to complain? They didn't give me that number. Not if it exists. But here's the thing. You can do that with the God of the universe. And each time he sees you, he listens. And he knows you better than you could ever imagine. That's what Psalm 139 tells us. And I promise you that a conversation with a God who is eager to hear your prayer is going to be much better than a conversation with a man you've never met who has to stop and listen. So much more meaningful. Romans 15.5 says, Grant you to be of the same mind with one another. May the God who gives you perseverance and encouragement grant you to be of the same mind with one another. I've said this several times over the past couple of months, but being of the same mind is not that hard. I'm going to use Lolly as an example today. And I noticed when Randy does this, everybody was like, oh, cool, he's walking around. So sorry if you don't see me on the camera. Lolly and I don't see eye to eye on everything, right? He's on the deacon board, and sometimes we have some discussions. We don't always see eye to eye. Lolly, where do you live? He lives in Enderlin. I live in Lisbon. Lolly, I'm not going to ask you how old you are, okay? We are from different generations. We see things differently. But, yeah, he's... <laughs> You said that, not me. Okay. But Ava, your granddaughter, is playing on the basketball team, right? My daughter is playing on the basketball team for the seventh grade girls basketball team. And you know what Lolly and I have in common? That this week they have their first game. We're going to be on the same side of the same gym. And even with people we don't agree with, we don't look like, we don't smell like, we're going to be on the same side of the gym. And you know what Lolly and I are going to have the same? mindset we want our little girls to beat the snot out of somebody else's little girls and not by one or two free throws we want a lot we want to crush those other teams we want our little girls to stomp a mud hole in them we are of the same mind on that i asked before service she's she is in agreement with this not physically stomping a mud hole in somebody for the record but we want the scoreboard to reflect that we're going to be of the same mind. In Greek, the, the words Paul uses are autophronon, and it means you think the same things. Paul orders the church to do this back in chapter 12. He says, by being of the same mind toward one another, not being haughty in mind, but associating with the humble. Do not be wise in your own mind. Tuck that away for a second. He says in Philippians 2.2, 2, Fulfill my joy that you think the same way by maintaining the same love, being united in spirit, thinking on one purpose. Why does he order the church to do this? Because it's simple to do. He shouldn't have to say this, right? Don't always do it. We as people, we like to argue. We want our way. We want to change other minds to think like ours. 
And when we don't get that, we don't like that. And so we dig in and our pride rears its head. And we say, I'm not the one who needs to change. They need to change. That other person needs to change. If you don't believe me, then why do you think Paul says, as one translation says, uh, do not be wise in your own mind or do not be wise in your own estimation? Because when we think we know better, without a standard, which is Scripture, our same-mindedness begins to evaporate, begins to fade. So we must go to prayer. Prayer may not change someone else's mind, but it might change my mind. And if all we ever do is always pray for other people to change without expecting the Holy Spirit to change us, then we are quite, we're not quite understanding the purpose of prayer and we're not submitting to the Holy Spirit's conviction. When we look at the first deacon board or the, the prototype deacon board of Acts chapter 6 a couple of weeks ago, it came about because the church was divided and it was diverse. And remember, this chapter opens with Paul reminding those who are strong to bear with the weaknesses of those who are without strength, to be united despite their differences, despite the secondary issues, the non-essential issues, the places where Scripture may be silent. They were still to pursue love and be in spiritual harmony with one another. A while back, this has been some time ago, someone came to me and they said, Pastor, I don't know if you've heard so-and-so. I didn't hear the whole thing. Oh, what's going on? And the thing that they began to tell me was so small, church, I'm not even going to dignify it by repeating, but it was the equivalent of you bought the wrong flavor of Pop-Tarts one time too many. Or the sugar packets are too hard to open. It was on that level. Pastor, they're very upset about that. Really, I don't know what we're going to do. And I thought about it. because Now, I'm a people pleaser. I really am. I wouldn't believe that maybe, but I do. I like people to like me. And I begin to think about that and pray about that. And it was like, I started praying and I just laughed. It was like the Holy Spirit said, really? Really? This is the pressing issue. How good is the church doing? How good is the church doing? Can't open a packet of sugar. You know, four years ago, that was not the thing. You recall when I became your pastor, many of you who are members, we sat down, we said, what, what does the church need? Many of you said, we need to change or we're going to die. We need to change or we're going to die. Okay. So we started changing things three years ago. You know what the big complaint was that came to the pastor? We're changing too fast. You've changed too much. Two years ago, I don't like the changes. This year, I don't like the Pop-Tarts. That's a sign that we are a growing church and that we're moving in the right direction. I'll take the Pop-Tart complaint and the sugar complaint and the little things because we're in obedience to the Word. We're in... We're advancing in the Spirit. We're advancing in prayer. And as Paul wraps up verse 5, he says, according to Christ Jesus. How verse 5 ends, according to Christ Jesus. We can have the same mind at a basketball game. We can have a similar mindset about politics, about automobile manufacturers. I'm not a Dodge guy, asked Joel. 
We can have the same sports teams that we cheer for, but it is only through prayer and through the Word of God we will have the same mind according to Christ Jesus. When we pray together, when we pray for one another, we are a church. We want to move in step with the Spirit. That's the third thing today. We are in step with the Spirit, the Holy Spirit. Verse 6 begins, so that with one accord, and I have talked about this several times. You guys are probably sick of hearing about it. I'm going to say it one more time. One accord. It's the Greek word homothemadon. And it means to be united, yes. To be in harmony, yes. It's such a complex Greek word. The writers of the ESV don't even like to touch it. The CSB, they kind of skip over it and hope you don't notice. But it's so deep. It comes from the Greek word homoloma, which means to be of the same kind, the same likeness even the same shape. And thumos, which often gets translated anger or wrath, but it can also mean passion or fierceness. It truly means, when we understand that word in the context it's used, it means we are after the same thing. We have the same passion, breathlessly pursuing the same objective or goal. Church, please hear me on this. Only the Holy Spirit brings that kind of unity. 1 Corinthians 12, 4-7, it says, There are a variety of gifts, but the same Spirit. There are varieties of ministries, but the same Lord. There are varieties of workings, but the same God who works everything and everyone. But to each one is given the manifestation of the Spirit for what is profitable. The wording Paul uses here. So, as Pentecostals, we should cherish of all the fellowships, all the doctrinal beliefs, all denominations, we should adore what Paul That phrase, what is profitable, sometimes gets translated the common good. So beautiful. English fails. The Greek word, where we get the English word. There are so many different organs, so many different sounds, so many different groups, so many different people, different giftings, different members, and yet the music we make is beautiful when we work together. How beautiful is the bride of Christ when we are united and passionately pursuing Her beauty inspires the most lovely of symphonies. We are in one accord. And Paul says in Romans 15.6, he goes on, he says, May with one voice, with one voice, by the power of the Holy Spirit, we may, with one voice, though we are a diverse group, though we have our faults, our different parts to play, just like every tuba, every trumpet, every trombone, every different note, and even the guy who plays the cymbals really loud, as long as he's in the same beat, right? A beating of love. First Corinthians 13 doesn't want to be clanging gong, clanging cymbal. One voice we sing. He proclaim as a church. First Corinthians twelve three. If we just back up the page, he says, "Therefore I make known to you that no one speaking by the Spirit of God says Jesus is cursed, and no one can say Jesus is Lord except by the Holy Spirit." Jesus is Lord is the unifying cry of the church since the day it began. In Acts chapter two, verse thirty six, Peter said. Therefore, let all the house of Israel know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus who was crucified. 
Romans 10, 9 and 10, that if you confess with your mouth Jesus as Lord and believe in your heart, God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart a person believes, leading to righteousness, and with the mouth he confesses, leading to salvation. If you cannot and do not stand with Christian brothers and sisters and acknowledge him as Lord, you cannot claim to belong. That's simple. Jesus Christ is exclusive. Christianity is available to all, but there are few who actually find it. Jesus himself said, enter through the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the way is broad that leads to destruction. There are many who enter through it, for the gate is narrow and the way is constricted that leads to life, and there are few. People don't like that message. People want to refute that message, but that's the message of Jesus. He is available to all. He is available to any who would cry out to him, but not all. Not many will. You find him. And people don't like it, but it's the Word of God Himself. If you think you're a Christian, but maybe there's another way to Jesus, maybe there's another way you'll find you can get to heaven, then one day you will wake up surprised in hell. Lots of people wake up in hell surprised. Nobody wakes up in heaven surprised. Because they know their Lord, they know their Savior, they know their That's not to say you may experience doubt concerning your salvation at times, or have moments where you don't question it. So if you're struggling with that at this moment, I want to encourage you with this. No one can lose their salvation in the same way you can lose car keys. But you can reject your salvation. Judas did this. Demas did this in Scripture. Both, they love the world more than they love Jesus. And if you are not rejecting Jesus, but you are pursuing Him, even though you may have doubts, even though you may have struggles, the Holy Spirit, if He continues to edify you and challenge you and convict you, and in this season that may be exactly what He's doing, and I hope that is enough evidence that you are no longer walking in the flesh, but you are walking in the Spirit. You sing with the rest of the saints in that glorious symphony. And our song, our worship, is not for those outside the walls of the church, nor is it for the entertainment of others, but it is for the enjoyment and the pleasure of the Lord Himself, that with one voice we glorify That's how Paul finishes verse 6, glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. And the Spirit takes us to Christ. Christ takes us to the Father. Jesus said, no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him and I will raise him up on the last day. Paul writes in Romans 8 and 9, however you are not in the flesh but in the Spirit, if indeed the Spirit of God dwells in you. But if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, he does not belong. The Father draws us to Himself. The Spirit of God will dwell in us that the Son of God may be in us. Jesus, being the Son, was not adopted. He was not created to be God. But He is the same essential being and nature of God the Father. That is the leadership and servanthood within the Trinity. There is perfect submission within the Trinity. Jesus is God. John 1, 1 1-4 In the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God. The Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things came into being through Him. And apart from Him, nothing came into being. Come into being. In Him was life. And the life was the light of man. He says, Jesus, apart from the Father, everything I do is in submission to the Father. He laid down His life for His church that we might have eternal life with Him. The church that moves, moves together to bring That's the fact. 
when we are moving in the right direction, we are seeing others come to Christ as we're instructed by the Word, encouraged through prayer and advancing. This morning I'm going to move to close. I'm going to ask the worship team to come back forward to sing. And drawing back to what I said at the very beginning, the devil is very busy. He is constantly at his plow sowing seeds of dissension and distraction and division. He's working to drag down the church of Christ. In a sense, he seeks to throw filth upon the bride's wedding dress. But his message is inconsistent deceit, while our message is the infallible, inerrant word of the living God. We are instructed by Scripture, we are encouraged through prayer, and we are, inv- we are to advance and step with the Spirit. Or church, we may as well hang it up. So today I'm going to ask you to stand. We're going to close. On the night Jesus was betrayed, He prayed several things. But one of them was this. He said, I do not ask on behalf of these alone, but for those also who believe in Me through their word. That's us. Jesus prayed for you the night He was arrested. And he said that they may all be one, even as you, Father, are in me and I in you, so that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you sent me. Church, one of the last things Jesus asked for his church to be in us, in one accord. And if it was important enough for Christ to pray it, we should be praying for that. We should be seeking that. So today I'm going to ask you, grab the, the hand of the person next to you. Maybe it's your spouse. Maybe it's someone you've never met. Who cares? Grab their hand. I want you to pray out loud for them. Pray together. Pray for one another. That we honor God's design for the church. That we're instructed by His Word. That we are led by His Holy Spirit as we encourage one another in prayer. We're a church that moves and stands united drawing others towards Christ. And when you're done praying, I just challenge you to sing along with the worship team and we'll close in a prayer of dismissal.